Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Do you seek purpose? Is your spirit a shameful pit of nothingness? Do you yearn for a community with a shared understanding of truth? The story promises this and so much more. I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm Brother Reed. And I'm Sister Callista. Join us every Tuesday to worship in the truth of the story. Hear the story. Listen to the gospel of its mystery. The story has great plans for you. For your family. And your enemies. Because the story has been written. And the story must be told. The The story story must must be be told. told. The Story Must Be Told is a spooky, unsettling short story podcast. New episodes every Tuesday on the Last Podcast Network. Find us on Twitter at TSMBTPod and revel in the truth of the story. Jake, come on, we have to get serious now. It's time to take over the world. I'd like egg salad. This is the that's the joke. <laughs> Humans are scum. <laughs> Humans are the most filthy, fucking disgusting things in the world. Hello, everybody. It is your evil alien space invader, uh, wizard Holden McNeely. And I am your tallest and therefore most highly ranked bruiser in all of the Urkin Empire, Jake. <laughs> And today we are here to talk about a personal favorite of mine, Invader Zim. <laughs> uh, let's 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 call it what it is—a classic Nicktoon. Absolutely, a absolute classic Nicktoon that was bizarrely um, thrown under the bus in a way. I would say this show kind of snuck up on me. I didn't know it existed when it existed. Mm-hmm. I got really actually weirdly into, it was like kind of right around when I returned to comic books. Uh, I remember I was doing, don't, all right, look, I had some privilege, okay? I was doing study abroad in London and there was a comic book store and I forget how, I'm sure someone tipped me off, but I can't remember who, I can't remember how, but somebody was like, you should check out this comic called Johnny the Homicidal Maniac. And I was like, that sounds like something I would super love. And then I got it and I totally super loved it. <laughs> and then that has like completely, aside from the fact that, I don't know, and maybe, and it's, it's like a, I have a hazy memory of this time period in my life and how I got turned on to Invader Zim, but I do have a fond memory of it because I, I think 
I I found out that the Johnny the Homicidal Maniac guy like created this cartoon show that's dark and awesome and like kind of shouldn't exist on Nickelodeon <laughs> and there were DVDs of it and I I uh, got it and and watched it and was like so pleasantly surprised and just kept saying like I can't believe this exists I'm so happy this exists and I have a really fond summer in college where we got all the DVDs I was having this like summer fling with this girl and we were just like our daily hang was like <laughs> let's like get really high and watch some more Invader Zim. And it was like this awesome chill. And, you know, I was doing sketch comedy and just kind of living that fun summer college life where I'm just kind of chilling and having fun with friends. And that was such, Zim was such a big part of that. And I remember you had to rebuild your street racer, Grease Lightning. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I know that we all know this story. Tale as old as time. And it was great. And it was so classic too. like, she like loved Gurr. And, you know, (laughs) I, I was like more super into like the dark horror elements of it all and just just had such a great time with this TV show and getting to watch episodes again in preparation for this uh, for our episode uh, was such a great time and such a fun journey back to that to that time period of my life and again like the fact and and we'll dive more deeply into this but the fact that some fucking goth dude was able to get a bunch of like Cronenberg references uh, and, and very fucked up story arcs past the censors and like on to Nickelodeon during a time. Now I know there was Ren and Stimpy, but this was like a weird time way after that when they were so not doing programming like Ren and Stimpy and stuff like that, where they weren't really pushing envelopes anymore, where they were really playing it safe into younger audiences where, so this show really was such an anomaly and such a special show and in a way a victim of the fact that it was such an anomaly because it had such a hard time garnering age appropriate audiences on, on the network that was really catering more to a younger audience than even Zim was made for. Well, they were, God, that was actually a really good uh, kind of wrap up of, a, the, of the Zim era, the time and place. But well, do you have, do you have personal memories maybe before we get into the whole through line and everything? Uh, the, I remember specifically where I was when I was like in high school or even, yeah, when I was in high school, I was obsessed with black and white indie comics. I, so like, you found it before me. I, or at least at a younger age, I uh, was at like an arts program. I am also of privilege. <laughs> Look, we're all right. I get it. Okay. But you know what? I got made fun of, dude, dudes and dudettes. Okay. People were mean to me and shit. Okay. So it wasn't all fucking roses, <laughs> white roses for me. Okay. White privileged roses. Father would feed me a bar of gold every morning. <laughs> <laughs> Jake Young is Jewish. He's, he's, he's strong. His people have struggled. <laughs> Let's not juxtapose that joke with the Jewish thing. Let's, it's been a it's been a weird week. Let's just kind of. My point is, I was uh, in an arts program with a bunch of like weird kids. I was like trying to learn animation, but like I was talking to just basically a cross section of the entirety of early two thousands, late nineties nerd like art nerd. So there was. Uh, you know, I, I met my first furry for the first time. I was uh, People showed me a bunch of anime I'd never heard of. Uh, I was learning, like, fine arts. I was uh, learning about, like, all these crazy performance art and watching Bjork videos. And yeah. my mind was expanding uh, at a very rapid rate. Yeah, and among the things that I was discovered, someone handed me um, all four issues of Squee, and it broke my mind. I had never encountered 
uh, humor that was quite like this. And it was... Uh, and what was that humor like? In case people don't know what Johnny the Homicidal Maniac and Squee are, we're going to, again, dig deeper once we really get into the mm-hmm. through line of all of this. But but maybe people don't know what this is, so we should try to explain a little bit. Well, here's the thing. This is what I, this is what I spent the week kind of like wrapping my head around is how much the current generation that we're like the, I guess the emergent gen, like Z late millennials are kind of like, they roll their eyes at their Zim phase, you know, uh-huh. tip penguin of doom, like uh-huh. uh, monkey bacon humor. Like, right. They're right. kind of like, they're, it's kind of embarrassing, like it a disco got, phase. I'd say this too, though. And in, in, in its defense, right? Because uh, we're going to no, be this Zim is, this defenders. Is, uh, no, I've been, I've been working on this analogy. Yes, this please, is please. Uh, you can't get mad at Invader Zim for shitty monkey bacon humor, just as much as you can't be mad at BB King for every shitty like suburban dad that thinks he can play the blues. <laughs> Watching the episodes of Invader Zim, like there's a sense of timing, yes. there's a sense of pacing. Yes, they don't just say like you know they. It's actually much the the references they use that are out of place are more imaginative, and you can tell that these are like. Things that made their group of friends laugh for some reason uh-huh. and like stuff that just like kind of got sticky in the writer's well, room. And I'd also argue that that is just one slice of Zim too, though, by the way, like yeah. the monkey bait. And, and mainly what Jake is referring to is especially the character of Gurr. Gurr is the is the like brain dead robot. Oh, no, are you kidding me? Episode Zim. one, like Zim's all like, like, uh, yeah, Irkin blood flows through my veins like rubber pants. <laughs> Acknowledge my veins, like it's it's very it's yeah. very out there, and yeah. that kind of like s- scatterbrained like dream logic use of the English language. Uh, not to mention just like the shattering of norms. Just like every mm-hmm. single Squee comic or or John the Homicidal Maniac comic was about like just normalcy being shattered by like pure like id and impulse. And it's such, and uh, oh oh real quick too. So Giant Homicidal Maniac, and we'll get more into this though, but. Um, is uh, they're both black and white comic books, Squee and Johnny. Johnny is about a guy who's gone insane, and he's sort of dealing with his own madness and going out, and he always ends up also, just murdering a bunch of people. And it's with a meta thread where, like, you don't know whether how much is actual insanity and how much is like he's there's actually a metaphysical presence that's like driving him. And another meta thread, meta thread. Hey, I'm meta thread. I'm here to give you a meta thread. Um, another meta I'm thread. A, I'm a character on a podcast. <laughs> another meta thread is just that um, uh, you know, this is like Jonah Vasquez, who we haven't even mentioned his name yet. I don't think. His... I'm sorry, it's pronounced Yarn. <laughs> Oh, is it? No, I I it was I had to learn this week that it was Jonan. <laughs> <laughs> His um, it's kind of like all the people in the world that he hates and secretly wants to. Uh, you know, do horrible things to in a yeah. fantasy world. So he's doing it through this comic book. Uh, and then Squee is sort of the opposite. It's this like little frightened child that all these horrible things end up happening to. And, um, you know, he gets abducted by aliens and he has to like, his best friend is like the Antichrist and he ends <laughs> up like, uh, you know, in the final bit, he's like dealing with Satan himself. And it's just all these like horrors and it's just him reacting to it all. It's kind of the other side of that coin. And they're both very gleefully dark and uh, violent and over the top, but in a cartoony way. In no way would I think, unlike um, our our Nickelodeon exec, uh, 
in no way would I think this would be like perfect fodder for a children's cartoon, but I'm so glad that they did think that. Um, and it was perfect for me and you in high school and me. I was probably still angsty during this phase of college. Even oh. I still had some of that angst. So and, I remember oh. really connected to those comic books uh, when I discovered them. When I first saw Zim on TV, I was like babysitting uh, for a family friend and uh, I just turned on the TV and it was on like Nickelodeon and it might have even been the premiere if I if like the timing is right in my head hmm. uh and i was watching this and i was like wait a minute why does this art seem really familiar like no. <laughs> no i could like my brain would not like believe that they right? actually gave this guy a nickelodeon show until i saw his name in the credits and this I just, is the, like, it's the last the couch over it's the last dude you would assume it's like this is my indie dark <laughs> evil entertainment world and now it's combining with my like you know, milk toast, fucking yeah, happy kitty entertainment. It's so fascinating and great, and I love when Nickelodeon takes risks because that always ends up being like the most memorable stuff. You know, mm-hmm. like Ren and Stimpy or Rocco's Modern Life or all those great shows where they would actually just, just, just take chances in, in what they did. So, so, anyways, as you can tell, we're both very enthusiastic about this, uh, about this person and the work he's done and the show Invader Zim that was taken from us far too soon. Uh, but there is actually a little light at the end of that tunnel, which I didn't even know about, and oh, we'll, and we'll okay. reveal that at the very end. So, why don't we talk about it? This all, of course, the mastermind. Uh, behind it is is Jonan Vasquez, who was uh, born and raised in 1974 in San Jose, California, and he was he hated how normal everything was. <laughs> it's kind of like me in that side. I connect with him in this. He was you know the suburbs. He had a very nice upbringing, and it was just uh, uh, miserably normal, I believe, as he put it. Um, he started drawing in kindergarten, just immediately wanting to lose himself in other worlds mm-hmm. because he was so bored with the world around him. Um, and he went to uh, ended up going to Mount Pleasant High School, and he was drawing a lot during class. In now, his can I talk about a formative experience that he described in a uh, interview with? Uh, I think it was the Nicktoons podcast. Cool, uh, don't cool. listen to that. Listen to this. Uh, <laughs> He well, says that listen to it afterwards. He said that his life changed when his older sister took him to see uh Alien. <laughs> ah, how old was he at the time? He claims to have been 8 Amazing. and then uh his uncle owned like a making of book and from ages 8 to 10 whenever he was over at his uncle's house, he would demand to just look at all the gory pictures in it. That's Which awesome. when you think of like what Joan and Vasquez is, it's ba- like his art style and in a way it's a lot it's basically H.R. Giger as drawn by a 10-year-old. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, and Cronenberg, right? He was also heavily inspired by the body horror f- uh, film director David Cronenberg, which we will definitely do an episode on at some point, I'm sure. Uh, Jonan said of Cronenberg, that man is one of the people I truly thank for existing. His attitude toward organic existence is so disturbing. It's brilliant. The transmogrification of the human body and all those themes. I've always <laughs> been into that, always been fascinated by it. When I took, when I look back at myself growing up as a little kid I see early signs of me being amazed with certain concepts like those and he just hits them right on the head every time he was also very inspired by Kurt Vonnegut and how he and Cronenberg and Douglas Adams writer of um uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy handled science fiction. I I was trying to find the connection between them Cronenberg maybe not so much but I think Vonnegut and Douglas Adams took science fiction comedy 
<laughs> and observations about the world around us and you know through a through a distorted lens to make statements through sci-fi and comedy um i think that's clearly what zim is all about i it's it's interesting because the, if there's one thing about invader zim that like sh- definitely shines through to me rewatching it as as a wizened old man is how much disdain everybody involved had for the human race. Yes, I like, love it. Like everyone who it speak, wasn't. It speaks to me so much. Everyone who wasn't Zim or Dib were like, and Gaz, I guess, were just like actual slobbering morons. Yes, yes. Actual like troglodytic, mentally inca- incapable, grunting hordes. Yes. Um, to oh, the my, point one where, of like, my favorite. Now, now I, that I'm an adult, like, you know, they'll they'll do a whole bit with, like, the attendant of the weenie hut who's like, um, I don't know. And I'm just like, <laughs> you're mad at the weenie hut guy? Like, the weenie hut guy has it rougher than I, you. I love, yeah, Bloody's Pizza Hog episode <laughs> okay. is one of my favorites. Their depiction of just how disgusting <laughs> fast food for children is, is, like, lo- like personally, just I love of mine. I love how far they push the envelope of how disgusting people could be, that, humans could be, especially. Uh, a fundamental disgust of just food is like such a specific kind of nerd feeling. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, that's that Cronenberg thing. Just that yeah. disaffected kind of just spiteful, just hatred of the fact that you are just a meat robot. Yeah. And and I love, too, how the show gets so like starts so simple with the simple problem and then just turns into this massive <laughs> either like crazy sci-fi movie with like space battles and like world domination or uh some horror film you know mm-hmm. with just like awful body horror and all the oh, stuff that we've been talking about did you about. rewatch dark harvest yes i oh love my dark God. harvest that's I wanted. To, so I mean, I, I, we'll get to best uh, favorite yeah, episodes yeah. later. But Dark Harvest is so like the first time Zim opens his mouth and yes. you just see the pile of organs, organs inside of him. <laughs> it's like how did Nickelodeon allow this show to they exist? Let, uh, we'll we'll get to we'll it. get to it. Okay, we're we're jumping too far. Okay, another inspiration, especially for his comic book drawing style. I love this crossover. He was hugely inspired by Laird and Eastman's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said of this. And by the way, a lot of my interview uh, quotes come from an interview by Martin Goodman for Animation World. He held a great interview with Jonah Vasquez, and I just want to give the man props and the website props. You got straight answers out of him? I've been reading a lot of Vasquez interviews, and he'll just, like, make shit up. Yeah, he he seemed really open and great in in this interview. Anyways, he says of the TMNT comics, It wasn't until I started collecting Ninja Turtles comics that something switched over in my head. To me, there was something just so different about those books that I did start to obsess over them. The way the books felt dirtier in my hands, the filthy artwork and hero characters that never seemed healed over from their last battles. There was a sense of person just behind the printed page that I had never felt before, a thinner separation from production to my hands and eyes that just fired hooks out into me. It felt unsafe, you know? It's like the book itself was less removed from the initial moment a creator is excited about having just come up with some great idea to when they finally finish a thing. Nice and polished and just a little dulled from before the thing was just another book. To me, anyhow. It's just what I interpreted the experience like, and I'm sure to a lot of people, it was just a book about big mutant turtles. Uh, I think that speaks a lot towards actually what he even confesses himself is his comic book style, or at least was during Giant the Homicidal Maniac, where he would just fucking lightning fast rip these pieces out, and he would do it stream of conscious style. the process as spewing, Yes, I he spewed. He, he would, you know, he would write the dialogue as it came to him. There really wasn't a lot 
of pre-planning. He would just start drawing the strip and fill in the gaps. And, you know, that was his approach. In hindsight, he felt that, you know, I think his approach now is a lot more refined than that. But as a young, you know, young, he's a teenager. He's a teen. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, You know, he's just fucking throwing shit out into the wind. But before he got to Johnny. Uh, he well, at how he got to Johnny is this: he actually started creating the character in high school. He helped design a new look for his school's mascot, and on the back of one of his drawings for this was an early version of what would become Johnny the Homicidal Maniac. His name was Johnny C. His school's newspaper even published many strips featuring what was back then called Johnny the Little Homicidal Maniac. <laughs> I feel like every cartoonist has their like default guy that they first start drawing. Right. Like, and D- John the Homicidal Maniac was John Vasquez's guy. Totally. Mine was Smokey and Spiky. One guy had smoke power, could turn into smoke, and then another guy, he was all big and fat, and he would he would shoot a bunch, he would just, a bunch of spikes would come out of him. And they were detectives. Uh, mine was a guy named Square Off, who was a man, get this, made of squares. See, that I think is pretty clever. I like mine because I was like, well, you know, the tiny, thin little glasses guy, he could like, you know, he can get around in his, spo- you know, as a smoke man or whatever in ways that the big guy couldn't. But the big guy, he was the bra. It was a bit of a wizard and a bruiser now that I think about it. <laughs> Anyways, Jonan says that it was a personal avatar of his who could carry out his revenge fantasies, as I said earlier. Um, though he has since tried to distance himself from the character that's kind of interesting don't you think well i feel like everyone uh especially once you have armies of there's mm, there's there's something to be said of just like how the unintended consequences of jonin's like empire being the kind of like weird mix of like childlike sociopathy that like some of the fans have exhibited yeah totally and also i mean th- we didn't really mention the fact that it's very goth inspired and it's oh, very we didn't like even mention goths and it's very like hot topic if no, you know if, if, mm, we'll in, a, get, in we'll, a way we'll get to that i think actually zim gets a little more hot topic looking in ways i have a theory but I think that Johnny was more, even to the point where there were like mini strips within the Johnny strips, and there was one strip about this like really stuck up, like full of herself goth girl, where he was clearly like poking at the the women in the goth scene. That's that he hated. what always gets me is that like he was this he was a goth, like yeah. that was the style at but the like time. But like a nerdy, quiet. He comic. still hated other goths. Yeah, he totally hated other goths. Well, exactly. It's really funny. He just liked wearing them big stompy boots and trench coats, it's and really, like the rest ha- was just noise. There's a hierarchy to every scene, right? And and so in his, you can see in Johnny and the way he handles certain characters, especially the goth characters in Johnny, that like, you know, you can see what the, you can get like little tidbits, at least from Jonan's perspective, of what a goth scene back in the, when, when was that? The 90s, right? Yeah, the, which should be like, yeah, late 90s. Late 90s, right? What what that looked like, what that felt like. And that's a really cool thing. I, re- I really appreciate it. But it's also totally immature. It is a teenage, early 20s angsty goth kid just like writing his fucking murder fantasies and as a kid around his age reading it was like yes finally <laughs> somebody gets me but in hindsight it's, it's like all right okay it's you like know when I mean? you watch early simpsons and they actually went back when bart was like actually a believable fuck up kid yeah and you were a fuck up kid and you're like oh my god finally my story is being told <laughs> also it was my, uh, watching some of the episodes with uh, with Marie back home, uh, you know, she would look at the classroom and just be like, "So, does this take place in Goth World?" <laughs> like it was weird that just the default it, it, yeah. person in Jonin's works a lot is just 
God. And the color scheme, it's purples and blacks and you know, it I, what I love he refers to it as it's it's dark but colorful. Yo. Which I love that phrasing. He really he really loved the color people on Invader Zim and like gave them big props in the interview. Not um not to including Ricky uh, Simmons, the uh, Simons? Uh, the voice of Gurr was a colorist. Um, yes, but who uh, did was he the Lenore guy or was that no a no that's person? Roman Dirge. That's Roman Dirge who helped uh, write it, I believe. Yeah, yeah, he contributed on a bunch of memorable episodes. Mm-hmm. The um the use of I mean this is like it's literally a line from Unbreakable, but it's like uh, uh, the secondary colors purples, maroons, greens, uh, like teals and browns and blacks. All these these are the colors of villains. These are the yeah. colors of. Of something being off. These are compromised colors. Mm -hmm. Whereas standard cartoon fare is all about primary colors. Like clear blues and reds and yellows and bright and shiny. And so like Zim, nothing else looked like it. Nothing else wanted to look like it. Yeah. Even Ren and Stimpy and even like, even the quote unquote fucked up cartoons were still cartoons. Yes. And that the fact that they managed to maintain that level of visual coherence throughout the run uh, is amazing the the animation in zim is so is good. so good and and also uh, props as well not only to the uh coloring but also to the just the the music and the sound of it it's so menacing and so just the, everything about it's so threatening and just <laughs> like evil and it's so fun in if that way if it's I love been a that. while since you watched uh invader zim and like maybe you've been watching cartoons now Pay attention to the camera angles. Yes. There is so many like tilts and pans and weird fucked up like kind of zooms in that show. Even like in a standard dialogue scene, they're doing Dutch angles and like moving the camera all sorts of ways, which contributed to the fact that this show was fucking expensive as fuck. Very expensive. And and, and a little not, and I know we keep getting like, we'll come back to Jonan. We're gushing, we're spewing. We're gushing, we're spewing. We're, this is a spewy episode, which I love. It's perfect uh, fodder for it. Um, but also, uh, with that, so much of the humor is like so aggressive <laughs> because of the way the editing is, because of the way the camera moves. Like one of my favorite moments right at the beginning of Dark Harvest, there's these like organs. And you see this like teacher pick up this uh, thing of water and there's this little creature in it. And she just like walks over to the window and like sets it down. And you think there's going to be seen there. And then just a softball just smashes through the window and breaks the thing. Oh, and that, just like that thing is a filler bunny, which was another Joan and Vasquez. Comic, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Just, which also. Like nowadays, like I'm sure it's full of just like shitty abortion jokes, but like <laughs> at the time, like choking with laughter. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, when I read Giant Amos Sodomaniac, I laughed a lot. And by the way, I found I find Invader Zim not just to be like stylistically awesome or the fact that it's like a horror thing that a uh, cartoon that kids. I, I find the humor still to be very good. Like, I I think it is very strong. Anyways, going back to high school, also during this time, he creates a character called Happy Noodle Boy. Uh, This is a comic within the Johnny the Homicidal Maniac strips. which is the comic that Johnny the Homicidal Maniac Johnny's writing because Johnny's Jonin. Uh, He's... Uh, it's read mainly by the homeless insane, and it usually <laughs> depicts the happy noodle boy standing on a soapbox screaming nonsense until oftentimes he is murdered. And apparently, Jonan created this. He said um, uh, his girlfriend at the time was the unwitting reason happy noodle boy was created. She always asked me for comics, but I couldn't draw as fast as she requested. Thus, I tried to create the worst abomination of a comic that I could so as to make her not want comics anymore. That abomination, my friends, was happy noodle boys. Uh, so, anyways, uh, th- that's kind of the world he's building right it's just this like shitty crazy awful awful world um so after high school 
Jonin uh, attends the De Anza College in Cupertino, California for film, but he ends up dropping out to pursue a career as a cartoonist. He worked a day job at a uh, high-end electronics store, which gives him uh, a lot of his uh, retail psychosis, <laughs> uh, and he specifically remembers the uh, day that when his Johnny the Homicide and Maniacs comics were selling well enough that he could finally quit his day job. And he bought himself a Dodge Neon. Oh, my goodness. Um, while at a... Uh, Imagine the Lord of, of Goths declaring <laughs> his freedom with a Dodge Neon. Well, in order to do this, he ends up getting Giant the Homicidal Maniac published as a as one-page strips in the goth subculture magazine Carpe Nocturne. <laughs> Seize the night. Or Cocte, Carpe Noctum, rather. Seize the night. So gothy. Um, <laughs> I had no goth phase, by the way, or like any... Wait, I thought you Vampire the Masqueraded a bit. No. <laughs> no, no, not really. Okay. I, uh, I was like goth adjacent. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I mean, they were, they were like around, but... We didn't have, like, a heavy goth scene, first of all, at my school. I, I just imagine, like, a bunch of, like, uh, black-clad ghost people, chain-smoking clove cigarettes in a graveyard. And then you're just, like, literally skipping by with a pinwheel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah, I didn't – yeah, was there – I mean, what was your relationship to goths? Oh, I was I was sheltered beyond sheltered. Yeah. I did not – my school had a dress code. Like Right, I, mine too, so it was really hard to be a goth. I remember – you know, um, there were dudes who were like almost a goth, but they were more the Jinko kids. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah, for sure. I was like mildly frightened of Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though my buddy like uh, listened to him all the time, and I, I like, I sort of got into Tool late. That's not really goth though. I feel like I'm so. Like I would just be mercilessly made fun of by anybody who's actually. And of course, a goth. we weren't working class, uh, disaffected queer youth in Manchester, England, <laughs> so we had no point of being. <laughs> um, um, so, anyways, yeah, I, I, I didn't really have much of a relationship to it, but um, I love the name of that Carpe Noctum. <laughs> Uh, anyways, he gets published after that as uh, full-length issues, uh, Johnny, that is, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, through Slave Labor Graphics, which is an alternative comics publisher. It was my childhood dream to get a comic published. Well, I guess teenage dream to get a comic published by Slave Labor Graphics. Like, yeah? Th- that was like... What else did they do? They did Lenore, probably. Uh, I, I don't know if they did Lenore, but they uh, they did a lot of uh, Evan Dworkin's uh stuff so like milk and cheese and like okay and just like but it was just the cool like it was to me it was cooler than dark horse it was cooler than right like i would do they still exist today uh they've like because they've had like these weird smattering of hits but their creator owned hits like i'm not quite sure i I believe they're still floating along in some form they've like spun off subsidiary companies maybe they've expanded kind of like a sub pop yeah. A little bit, right? Very much so. Uh, so uh, it was September of 1996 that uh, Jonin announces in the introduction of his sixth issue of Johnny, the Homicidal Maniac, that he can now quit his day job, as you mentioned before. One interesting element to all of this with Johnny, the Homicidal Maniac, and I think bleeds into all of this horror stuff in Zim and all, all of just his neuroses that, that bleeds through into all of his work. He has hypnophobia. Which is a an irrational fear of sleep. So he like he even talks about I mean, it's there's always like a Z with a question mark, which is literally like saying like question sleep, which is relating both to Johnny's insomnia, but also apparently I mean I this is what I read. I think I believe it's true. But yeah, so um he he would be up all night and when he was up all night, he would just be like fucking freaking out. 
And so, so much of his work is about being like neurotic and surrounded by like horrible nightmare people. (laughs) And I think people do become like drooling characters in your fucked up, you know, world if if you uh, are up all night and unable to like think properly. You know, like the food thing, the sleep thing. Like it's just it's just a very like this is. I feel like everyone goes through a phase where like it suddenly clicks in your head the absurdity of existence and you're just like what do you mean we all micro die every day <laughs> yeah, it's, and then it just is bizarre. come back to life as if that's normal like it is what weird do you mean we like it. take living things and like rip them apart and put the flesh in hot boxes <laughs> and then eat it for breakfast next to like toaster strudel like everything about being alive in this world is stupid <laughs> and like only and it takes like a very special energy to just like not just kind of like shrug it off but to really like just Fight that shit for as long as you can. Jonan says, I have always really hated sleeping. It's horrifying. And Johnny, every time Johnny actually would fall asleep, anytime he would wake up, he would question the reality he was now in because he didn't know if it was the same world he fell asleep in, which I think is definitely what Jonan's thought process was, right? Which I can see that. And sometimes I'm even getting it lately because there's certain like facts about my reality. I like have to remember every day when I wake up and I'm like, oh, what? Oh, right. This is the world I'm in. This is so (laughs) weird. Anywho, John the Son of Maniac comes out. It's an underground hit. Squee comes out. People are loving it. Can't wait to go home and read it again when I get home. It's really good. I have the trade on my bookshelf. It's awesome. Uh, I read it multiple times. Uh, and he's doing, Jonan's doing pretty good, right? And right around this time, Nickelodeon, for some strange reason, is searching for a show that would be great for, well, well, this is the reason. It's not strange at all. They're looking for a show that would be great for their 11 to 15-year-old demographic. What I was going to say was strange was the fact they were looking for, like, an edgier show for Nickelodeon at a time when there wasn't really much of that going on at all. Well, that's the thing is there was a gap in their lineup. Yeah. Because Nickelodeon always had... Uh, edgy shows. It was kind of the foundational, uh, I guess, the the birth event of Nickelodeon Animation Studios was the fact that uh, Ren and Stimpy was such a clusterfuck to produce with John Kay being like really inconsistent and fighting the censors and like, you know, such a such a uh, like a tooth pulling uh, exercise in production that they started their own studio in uh, Burbank, I believe. I think Uh it's in Burbank. I believe so. And so as they had a gap in their lineup, where's our Ren and Snippy? Where's our Rocco? Where's our, you know, where's our edgy show that to bring in those like older kids? And they didn't have one. Uh, SpongeBob had come out. uh, Rocket Power is out. Yeah, Rocket Uh, Power, which is Rocket Power is um, the... Hey Arnold is out. Like there's nothing. Yeah. Angry Beavers. Like nothing's got those that tooth. Yeah, Rocket Power is these uh like by the creators of Rugrats, and it's just these like extreme sports kids and stuff. Um, so it is producer Mary Harrington who discovers Squee and contacts a 22 year old Jonan Vasquez and asks him to pitch a series. Of this, Jonan says, I think she saw a certain amount of kid relatability, mainly in the way I handled the kids and the way Squee's behavior was an overall mood. 
I don't think anyone would ever want to make Squee into a kid's show. I don't think anyone would be that insane. But I, <laughs> but I think she liked the way I handled the characters and the way there was uh, actual character as opposed to just sick humor. Something in that made her take a chance on coming to me and asking me to come up with the idea for a show. I'm not certain whether it was with the intention of converting Squee into a series. I like to think it wasn't. So he's in a spot where he needs a completely new idea. He literally can't use anything he's created before because it's all far too dark. Dark and fucked up for a children's program. Got to paint the walls with blood. Got to keep them keep them fed. <laughs> so no matter yeah. how many coats you put, it keeps begging for more. <laughs> so knowing that he can't do that, he ends up just thinking about all the things that inspired him when he was that age, when he was in that demographic that they're looking for, and those things were robots, monsters, horror films. Paranormal investigators, sci-fi flicks, you know, ones like Alien, um, <laughs> uh, Monty Python, and the works of Douglas Adams. Uh, all of these things swirling around, you know, Cronenberg, all of this stuff. Like, how can I put all this stuff into the pot and make something work? And at first he was working on something a little too cute that he never presented to Nickelodeon. It was kind of more of a Mork and Mindy idea with a goofy alien not understanding Earthling ways and like a roommate relationship odd couple thing, right? And he was like, this is too cute. This is not me. And for him, by the way, at 22 years old, is I've been here before and I've fucked up on this way that he succeeded. Having the self-realization that he's pitching an idea that's not actually him, so he's not going to pitch it, is pretty brilliant. Because I have done the opposite in the past, especially when I was that age, where I was pitching oh, you ideas. you think I have were, something unique to offer? Wait till I give you what I think you want you to want hear. You want to hear, <laughs> yeah, right? And then it's just, just bullshit, boiled down, crappy, cynical idea, right? That you think he's is called be good. Banana Dude, and he <laughs> loves sports. And he's just like the other shows you have. Um... <laughs> Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections, such as 100 Most Popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of Wizard and the Bruiser a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at wizard.robinhood.com. Once again, that's wizard.robinhood.com. He ends up, while in bed one night, uh, over the course of an hour, coming up with a darker concept of an alien invader there to destroy Earth. He, uh, he, he's just sitting in bed, and he essentially puts together the basics here. He comes up with Zim. He comes up with the arch nemesis, Dib. Uh, by the way, Dib is sort of like this conspiracy theory enthusiast kid who wears, like, a black trench coat and, and you know, is this, like, weird conspiracy Has the side of his head kid. shaved, which yeah. is a weird look for an 8-year-old, but <laughs> or I guess they're supposed to be 11. Still an odd look. And also comes up with maybe my one, if not my favorite, one of my favorite characters in the show, Gaz. Dib's sister, who is like a super badass, who like loves her um, just game a cauldron slave, of rage. Who loves her Game Boy parody device called the Game <laughs> Slave, and he, yeah, she just doesn't give a fuck about anyone, and she's like the strongest, smartest character on the show, but she just like doesn't give a fuck. So because all she wants to do is play video games, um, he nails all of these basic things down. 
And um, he just really liked the idea of an alien from an advanced race that could easily destroy all of humankind, but instead he stays in school all day and, like, tries to pretend to be, like, a normal kid um, and never uh. really pulls it off. Jonan says, I love the idea of anything that's co uh, considered to be a superior being. They've got all this amazing technology, and yet, ultimately, they're still just idiots. They're just guys piloting this gigantic space spaceship. You get the idea that they stole it rather than built it themselves. They haven't evolved beyond being driven by their personalities. That's what Zim is. He's got this incredible arsenal at his hand, and the only thing that's stopping him from destroying the Earth is the fact that he's a moron. <laughs> Anyone else in that position, there would be no show because Earth would be destroyed in the first episode. All right, here's my pitch. This incredibly unlikable person who's full of himself and prone to fits of rage fails repeatedly through no impact of any other character. <laughs> Ta-da! <laughs> uh, so it's 1999, and Vasquez makes his pitch, and this totally leads to a pilot, which totally ends up getting greenlit. Now, the pilot's interesting mm -hmm. uh, because the first voice actor who was chosen for the role of Zim was actually uh, Mark Hamill. Yes, it was the Mark Joker Hamill. The Joker himself, and uh, they thought the voice didn't quite work right, so then they got Billy West. And a thing you have to realize, too, Billy West, of course, Stimpy, Fry from Futurama, he's done a million everythings. Yeah. We've talked about him on this show before. He replaces Hamill. One thing you have to know about all of this, this kind of sets up the stage for a big thing that makes Zim so unique and interesting. Jonan never wanted, like, super experienced people. Because super experienced people were going to bring whatever they, whatever their baggage was or whatever they felt that was the way you're supposed to do a cartoon show into the process. And he wanted people who, like him, had no idea what they were doing and therefore would actually take major risks. You know, an interesting thing about um, the character of Zim that he, Jonan, connects to himself is that idea that, that Zim just blindly is like i'm just gonna do this you know what i mean he's he just blindly decides he's gonna do some crazy scheme and um is too foolish to not give it a shot and that's a lot of what jonan is doing right now he has no fucking idea how to run a cartoon show this is nothing anything close to what he's done before he didn't even go to school for that and Every time we you know, covered, we dropped out anyway. When we covered Avatar, we talked about how Brian Konetsko worked for shows like Invader Zim and King of the Hill. And so when it was his turn to make an, a cartoon, he knew what he was doing. Uh, Steven Hillenberg worked for Rocco's Modern Life. So when it was his turn to make a cartoon, he knew what he was doing. Like Vasquez is the first one that just kind of like stumbled backwards with a completely different set of skills. Yeah. Uh, except comics, which is why uh, the show was legendary and won a bunch of awards for its storyboards because that was all he like could do is like lay out each shot, lay out each panel. That was his strong suit. But in terms of actually getting it produced, like even the art style, like the art style is crazy. Nothing else looks like it. All the weird mm -hmm. angles, the kind of oblong beaked heads and every and the hairstyle. Uh, like, and then he was just like, and then we'll hand it off to Korea, and they'll definitely know what to do with it. <laughs> they had to do so much corrections on that, Jonan adding said, to the cost. Jonan said, I think that Zim is just the part of me that refuses to listen to anybody. It's the only reason why I get anywhere. People always telling you this and that. You've got to be careful of this and that. You know, like, learn a trade so that you'll have something to fall back on. The only thing I enjoy is drawing, making up these horrible little stories. And Zim, the thing that keeps him going, that keeps him so relentless, is the fact that he's oblivious. It's his own 
only strength. In his case, it's absurd. If he realized what an idiot he was, he would break down crying, but, but he doesn't. Everything he does is pure genius. He's unstoppable, and that makes him terrifying, really, because there is no greater enemy than an idiot who doesn't understand that he is an idiot. But, Jake, I digressed so hard. We were talking about the voice actors. So, oh. Hamill is hired. He doesn't like the voice. Uh, and, by the way, he doesn't want anything... Jonin doesn't want anything that's too, like, zany, that's too, like, traditionally cartoony, right? Well, zany... He, uh, you know, had to interview a bunch of voice actors for the voice of Gurr, and he was shocked to discover that literally every voice actor in the in the animation scene already had a quote unquote goofy robot voice, yeah. and they all sounded the same. Like yeah. that was the archi- like it was an archetype that had that everyone already had figured out. And he was like, "No, no, that's not." And so he had to actually just like. Uh, Get his buddy, Ricky Simmons, to audition. Simons, I think. Simons. He literally... um, I got it wrong before. He literally said, he was like, well, I mean, you know, we might as well fucking let him audition, (laughs) essentially. And so he ends up up, uh, trying a few voices, Simmons does, but... uh, they end up going one. It was based on a memory that he had when he was a kid of doing hand puppets, <laughs> and he tried the voice, and it got him the role. Do, even though, do, do. yep, even though they did have to uh, make it higher pitched and uh, make it a little more robotic sounding with editing. But uh, I was the turkey all along. We digress again because okay, you've got Hamill. He gets replaced by Billy West. He gets replaced by Richard Stephen Horvitz. Um, he also did, known as Daggett from the Angry Beavers. Exactly. Uh, I listened to an interview with him and. Uh, he does not look like a weird screaming child, believe it or not. He looks like a, an adult man, and he was basically forced to do voice acting because he was trying to do, get commercials, and the fact that he had an adult man body but a squeaky child voice <laughs> kept getting him denied the roles because there was just such a feeling of gross incompatibility <laughs> watching him on camera. I love the basic trope he does with Zim that I kind of did at the beginning of the episode where it's just like, I'm here to destroy the world! Like, <laughs> because, like, there's something about it that never gets old to me. I always like find that funny. I don't know. It's like ridiculous. So anyways. Everyone loves like a micro Vincent Price. <laughs> yes, exactly. It is like that, isn't it? It's so great. So yeah, so Jonan never done a television show before and with his comic books this is a totally stream of consciousness sort of thing that he was doing right he's just writing it as it goes but you can't do a show like that so um he had to really work out a whole nother way and he really hated the managerial part of the job especially and he's he's got like almost way too many hats on this show as well he's he's the head writer He's, you know, he's also doing tons of character designs himself, and he's heading up voice direction as well. And he was able to relinquish, like, the managerial work once he got enough people that he trusted, but he was doing all of this at once. Also, I thought another interesting point about comics to animation. In a comic book, if he got to the end of the issue and there was still more story, he'd just say, cool, I'll just finish it in the next issue. With a cartoon, you have 11, you know, in his, in, in, Zim, in Zim's case, it's 11 minutes because each episode would generally be two different stories, mm-hmm. right? And you had to tell your story in 11 minutes and there really wasn't, a, you know, usually a, oh, we'll just do a part two after this. You know what I mean? Like, no, you had to tell the story in 11 minutes. There's way more constraints on Vasquez than he ever had before as an indie comic book writer. And I mean, that that is for definitely a, interesting. I, I don't, I didn't quite get the timeline on this, but for a hot second, 
Frank Conniff, I guess our network brother from Movie Slam with the Mads, mm. uh, was actually on board as the head writer to like help kind of smooth the transition. But uh, like his sensibility of like what wacky sci-fi was and what Vasquez's uh-huh. idea of what because they're just from two different generations, right? Like it didn't quite gel. And then uh, I believe Eric Trueheart got on boarded as an as to kind of like keep the writers' room going. Right, 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 right. So the, our director, Steve Russell, Russell, right? Mm-hmm. Also directed The Wild Thornberries. He also directed a personal favorite of mine, Duckman. Duckman. I love Duckman. He also did Stressed Eric and Rugrats. Um, Of him, Jonas I'm sorry, Stressed Eric? Yeah, apparently there's a really awesome cartoon show called Stressed Eric. Never fucking heard of it. I know, I need to check it out. Anyways, Jonan says of Steve, Steve does a beautiful job of translating what's in my head into animation. That's the most important thing to me. He treats it so seriously. Seriously, I say I want it to look like a movie, like you're looking at a scene from a movie, not like a flat shot from the Sunday funnies. He knows what a dramatic shot is, and he knows what a dramatic scene is. I need that for this show, because even though it's supposed to be funny, like I always say, the more dramatically it's handled, the funnier it is, because it brings a level of absurdity to the joke, which I completely agree with, and I think he, uh, Steve uh, Russell is a lot of the reason for you to thank for like how great and cinematic this show feels uh, the um god the way that the show will literally make you forget what show you're watching and then just pull a gear shift back to like looney tunes is so fucking good it's so good um another big component to this are the other two main writers on the show rob hummel and eric trueheart there were other writers that maybe did a couple episodes here and there but these are the two main dudes that uh jonan worked with jonan had worked with rob hummel for years before zim writing scripts so it was a total natural choice for jonan who says he knows what i like and what i don't like he censors himself when he knows there's something i'm going to take out anyhow he's that much in tune with what i'm going for and for eric it was his first First ever TV gig. He found him while scouring tons of scripts looking for a third writer. And uh, Eric Trueheart had some internet shorts that Jonan liked. I mean, this is like totally green person again. Yeah. Another another totally green uh, influence on the show. Jonan says he had never worked in animation before and had never worked in anything like television before. And that I love. I love the fact that a lot of these guys have never worked on any other kind of cartoon. And I can see that they're not pulling from anything else. They're not being inspired by any other show they've worked on. And there's not another definite style coming into it. It's all new to me. Um, And he says, that's really important to me. Some of the most important people on the show, this is our first job. It's all people who haven't been encrusted with years and years of working on other things. You know, the ones who know the ropes and know what you can't do. They're not afraid to try it, which is the coolest fucking thing about these people. And I know I've kind of repeated myself with this statement about how everybody was new, but I just think it's so fucking cool. And I think that's why Zim is so good. And I wish that the industry uh, went about things like this more often because it just gives us these great, great projects. And I think it's so important. It bears repeating, you know? It was also incredibly expensive. (laughs) Yes, it was also wildly expensive, which, uh, and and it, I kind of failed. So I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. You they know used what I mean? cutting edge uh, 3D <laughs> uh, imaging for a lot of the shots. They had to actually consult with the producers of Futurama because it was basically just Zim and Futurama that were actually doing this mixed 3D, 2D. By the uh, way, another reason why Billy West was replaced. 
oh. because he didn't want uh, the lead of two sci-fi cartoons going on at once. The, you can actually listen. You can actually find the pilot on YouTube, and it is very weird uh, listening to Billy West's performance as him. It's mm-hmm. completely different. Yeah. Um, you know, the shows uh, they kept butting heads with the censors. Uh, Joan and Vasquez, uh, in interviews and in like uh, blog posts, keeps talking about like having to argue with quote unquote blonde automatons that were like always concerned that you know oh your show scared my children or like oh you can't murder this character on screen. <laughs> he wanted to kill off so many characters, but Nickelodeon always refused. My favorite moment for this was uh, in the Game Slave Two episode mm-hmm. where uh, it's it's like the only episode. Where like Zim is just not present at all, which is amazing, and it's a uh, Gaz trying to wait in line in a Zim-like world's uh, GameStop for the midnight release of the Game Slave Two, and she encounters Iggins, the still prescient, horrifying gamer stereotype, and he <laughs> dies in an elevator crash, and they just linger on the wreckage, and then just in the final few frames, he just bursts out and like flies through the air and just goes like Iggins. <laughs> because they, clearly always, yeah Nickelodeon would always make them undo a debt there was even one in Hamster Geddon at the very end uh, there's a card that says uh, no characters were harmed in this episode even though like clearly like hundreds of characters like died in the episode but they would just it was all like tongue in cheeks like little kind of nods at uh, Nickelodeon, they even created a character, a joke character for the show named Nick that was always happy and like gleeful as a poke on Nickelodeon who kept oh. trying to make the show happier. Uh, in Zim Eats Waffles, Nick has his best performance <laughs> just <laughs> as like uh, Zim is getting tortured and like things are going crazy and there's death squids or whatever monsters are on the loose <laughs> and he's just like grimacing in a smile just being like, this is terrible. <laughs> he always They always kept trying to murder this character, Keith. Um, but Nickelodeon kept denying it, but they weirdly approved of him getting attacked by a squirrel and falling off a building in one of the episodes. Um, they also, um, there was this whole story. We have to talk about uh, Bloody Gur mm. here. Uh, so there's this whole thing where there's this, this image. This is like one of them creepy pastas where like if you yeah. put in the uh, Ocarina of Time cartridge backwards, like the devil comes and steals your eyeballs. Yeah, right? there was this image that Jonan drew of Gur covered in blood that he wanted to use. I thought it was, I think it was Ricky that actually Oh, it was Ricky. And or maybe I think Ricky colored it because he was the colorist. So he he was um, so Gur is like covered in blood. Nickelodeon like hates this image. It's not like, like not like full carry, like dripping, like menacing, yeah. oozy blood. Well, anyways, they took this image and as like kind of a fuck you to Nickelodeon, just like did it, you know, like um, Exorcist style, just snuck it into like little frames mm-hmm. that you can you would never notice unless you pause it at like the exact perfect spot. But you can see the bloody Gur image in a few different episodes. Also, there was another thing they wanted to where they killed off Dib in an episode and permanently replaced him with a new kid named Louie that was just like the new nemesis of Invader Zim. Well, Dib was actually uh, was testing very poorly. Yes. And so the writers actually they came up with an acronym that was like the Dib Defense Squad or something. Yeah, yeah. And so if you notice, his design kind of shifts ever so slightly. Like his head gets bigger. Mm. He gets a little bit cuter. Which as- leads to the running joke about his head being too big in the show. <laughs> yeah, people... the. We we uh, Dib didn't play in Peoria. 
Um, another important aspect to the show is Aaron Alexovich, who is a character designer who, again, came directly to the show right after graduating for, from Cal Arts, or as Jonan puts it, or some nightmare place, uh, <laughs> which again just speaks towards Jonan's hate for like status quo animation oh, okay. houses. Well, no, like okay, that. this is specifically uh, Invader Zim premiered on the same day as The Fairly Odd Parents. Ah, uh, yes. And The Fairly Odd Parents uh, was created by Butch Hartman, who now is like, uh, he's been hashtag canceled a million times, but whatever. He worked on Dexter's Laboratory, and uh, the early tests for Fairly Odd Parents and the early season of Fairly Odd Parents, it was just a reskinned Dexter's Lab. <laughs> like, yeah. The art style is very similar. And so Jonan is breaking his ass, like trying to do this cool thing with this ragtag group of people that are like breaking boundaries and winning awards and like pushing the art form as far as it can go. Meanwhile, Fairly Odd Parents is just sweeping in the ratings, is doing fantastic. Nickelodeon loves the Fairly Odd Parents. Why can't you be more like the Fairly Odd Parents? <laughs> and so in every interview, when he has to talk about like what shitty animation is, he like very roundabout <laughs> describes exactly the Fairly Odd Parents. <laughs> Um, so you know, it's like a sitcom with like a premise and like gag reels and everything looks like it's out of a bad like UPA cartoon. It's yeah. just like, okay, okay, Joan. <laughs> okay. Jonan uh, used uh, his good buddy Mark Torici to compose the theme for the music, which I think is, I love the the, the opening to Vader Zim is so, gets me on board so quickly with the like, Human takeover, they're all like, yeah! And you just hear this like, bam, bam, bam. Oh, know? I love the uh, the, the non to industrial music because there's like machinery clanking and it's like kind of baby Nine Inch Nails a little yes, bit. Yes, it's baby Nine. It's so intense. And all he wanted was military music mixed with futuristic electric or- orchestral music. Um, originally, he got Michael Tavera, who is known for doing Land Before Time and American <laughs> Tale, to compose the music on the pilot. But he and Jonan didn't really seem to work well together, so he was replaced after that with Kevin Manthe, who did Robot Chicken and The Sims 2. Apparently, Jonan wanted the music to be surprising, and he felt Tavera was doing more traditional kid show music. Again, him just trying to separate himself from everything else that's going on at the time. Uh, so Manthai, the new guy, he comes in and makes like this industrial techno sounding music, um, that fits right in with the show. So yeah, the, the show comes out, as you said, it ends up being placed right between the fairly odd parents and uh, yeah. And rocket power who I described earlier. <laughs> it's just the worst, just the worst, right? Like just so uh, two shows that are made for kids younger than the demographic that Zim is going for. And Zim is right in between the two of them. Remember in the first episode where uh dibs trying to like, is like just immediately shocked that everyone accepts Zim as human. And he's like, what's with your green skin? And like, Zim's like, I have a skin condition. And then Dib's like, oh yeah, well you don't have any ears. Or not ha- like, is not having ears part of your skin condition? And there's just like a beat. And then Zim just looks down and goes, yes. <laughs> and it's like, you're not, you couldn't make jokes like that at the time. Yeah, That's know. like so fucking dark. It's so good. And, and so... Jonan um, is desperate to try to get the show transferred to MTV <laughs> because it's like the same parent company runs both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Ren Stimpy famously made the jump between the two. So, like, it wasn't unprecedented. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So he's, like, trying to get that to happen. Season one runs for 20 episodes. And then, and I don't understand how this happened, but it was renewed um, for a second season. In season two, though, and I can't believe this factors into it, um, 9-11 happened, 
And I'm sorry, what happened? 9-11, the thing I, with the planes hitting I don't the remember. buildings that shocked and changed the entire world. And now everyone refers to their lives before 9-11 <laughs> and after 9-11. You know, that whole thing happened right during the second season. And uh, wouldn't you believe this super dark show about human takeover? Uh, destruction. On, yeah, human destruction and takeover on a kids network was just like not what people really generally were wanting to watch at that time. It, it was just a victim of poor timing. Also, by the way, you know, Nickelodeon, when they greenlit Zim, they were also trying to greenlight like a block of edgy dark cartoons. And one, by the time Zim came out, it was the only show that ended up getting greenlit as a series from all of the cartoons that they were trying to shop. So again, it was just a victim of things completely out of its control. If it had had a block that was more like, you know, um, Ren and Stimpy and Rocco kind of felt good together, right? Um, or, you know, they were, uh, Zim was just kind of, it just missed the boat for the Adult Swim revolution. Yes, or just missed the boat for Adult Swim, like perfect Adult Swim show, right? So there was even an episode that was supposed to air like very shortly after the 9-11 attacks called Door to Door, which featured a violent scene that had a demolished city that was in a virtual world that resembled New York City very much so. So they ended up having to push that sh- that episode back six months so that they could scrub it from, you know, that scene from the episode. Um, and even uh, and then they aired it six months later, and they aired the accidentally aired the original version, Oh, by the way. I didn't so know that's that pretty part. amazing. And then every time they aired it after that, it was the censored one, but I love that they accidentally did that. Lilo and Stitch also had a weird 9-11 moment. Oh, yeah? Yeah, there was uh, at the end that like oh, weird yeah. spaceship that kind of looks like an airplane was an airplane, and it uh, crashed into a city. It crashed into, like, Vegas geez. at a certain point. So, um, and that's what we mean by before and after. Um, uh, now you got to take your shoes off if you want to fly to fucking Chicago. So the show's getting moved around two to different slots as well. Um, oh, the, oh, you mean the kiss of death? The kiss of death on any network. And Nickelodeon finally announces plans to cancel the show, which prompts fans to start an online petition. It the gets, most powerful and effective form of mass communication. It worked for Star Trek. But it did not really work for Invader Zim. It got 55,000 signatures, but still didn't have any effect. There were many episodes left unfinished. And the final one, The Most Horrible Christmas Ever, was aired in December of 2002, marking the end for the series on Nickelodeon. There were actually a few uh, season two episodes that just didn't air until the DVD uh, release way later. DVD release and the Nicktoons Network. So there were only 27 of the original scheduled 40 episodes that aired. There was also uh, a TV movie in the works, Invader Dib, that was unfinished as well. The six completed episodes, yeah, finally got a release on DVD in 2004. And the reruns of the show were aired on Nicktoons in 2010. Now, Nicktoons is separate from Nickelodeon proper, correct? Yeah, it's a cable channel. Cable channel, right? But wouldn't you know, it was uh, Invader Zim were the network's second highest rated show um, just below Avatar, actually. Which oh, is the fun. other cult Nickelodeon yeah, show that exactly. cost a boatload. Exactly. So it did get a lot more success later on. And if you have an account, you can watch all of the original episodes on Hulu. They're all on there, which oh. is fucking awesome. Is I have a Hulu account. I had so to go like, to weird yes. Russian websites. Exactly, right? And so I was like, finally, Hulu gives me – I need to cancel that fucking subscription. Uh, so can we talk about the fandom? Can we talk about the weird post – 
cancellation hot topic renaissance. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about some favorite episodes. I want to talk about the fun thing that is in the works currently for Invader Zim. So we've got a few things to talk about left before we end up this episode. Uh, yeah, let's talk. Let's let's speak upon the weird fandom. Are you talking about that one? I didn't even write this down or put this in my notes about the psycho kid who blames Zim on murder. He like murdered and then sort of cynically, but. Like he he blamed it on Zim, but then it was like it was all bullshit, or I don't know. I so hot so <laughs> so like there's this weird thing that happened where Hot Topic took over America's malls, and Invader Zim was like almost perfectly made for Hot Topic yes. because uh, Hot Topic like was served both goths and like the scene the scene kids, right? And uh, scene kids were basically suburbanites that saw all the cool fashion shit that the goth kids were doing. But had no point of reference or like cultural but memory. Just wanted to dance. But just wanted to dance. And so Invader Zim is colorful goth. Yes. Like it's dark, it's yeah. brooding, it's menacing, but also it's like colorful and has funny taco jokes. And like it almost lent itself perfectly to like backpacks and t shirts and like fun little like tchotchkes and vinyl toys. And so the mixture of like teenage angst and misanthropic humor and cute like girl graphics and funny quotable punchlines like just gave it this life and of course pirated episodes off of your favorite peer-to-peer networks like LimeWire and Kazaa uh it just had this it just resonated with an entire generation of kids who like just you know were a little bit different were a little bit freaky Online, the fandom, uh, there was a huge fangirl contingent that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, made their own uh, Zimsonas. And, in, like, you know, kind of like how you can look up Invader, uh, you know, uh, Holden the Hedgehog or Marcus the Hedgehog. Oh, Marcus the Hedgehog. Remember <laughs> Marcus the Hedgehog? <laughs> um, uh, you could look up, like, Invader Jake or Invader Beth. And, like, people were drawing their own Urkin invaders as, as uh, expressions of themselves. Tons of shipping. Tons of fucking uh, slash and yowie and romantic romantic stuff, but that's what always happens with fangirls because like Jonan and the team were just a bunch of like raucous dudes that built this universe that like had no affection, had no romance, had no emotional growth, had no relationships, and so it is it is like the imperative of fangirls from the internet to like complete that world because right. you want to enter a world you love. Yeah, that is like you want to live in the world of Zim, but the world of Zim has no kissing, <laughs> and so the fangirls are like, "Don't worry, Jonan, we'll add all the kissing." <laughs> according to rumor, according to internet legend, uh, Steven Universe creator Rebecca Sugar wrote extensive Invader Zim uh, fan fiction, and uh, the character of Peridot seems to be a very clear reference to Invader Zim in her speaking style and focus on invasion and like kind of uh, boundless confidence. Anyway, I found a panel from, uh, it was the 2012 Invader Con, which was a completely independently financed and organized Invader Zim uh-huh. uh, convention, where Joan and Vasquez got to sit down and just answer Q&A, and it is a fucking terrible nightmare. <laughs> uh, within like the first Two minutes, a young woman, like, like sounds like a child, is like, uh, Jonan, uh, uh, how do you feel about the fact that there are hundreds of fangirls here that would love to tie you to their beds and rape you mercilessly? Jesus. <laughs> Which le- leads to, like, thou- like, the entire crowd, like, whooping in unison, being like, woo! <laughs> and, like, one guy being like, approve that question. <laughs> like, so much inappropriate shit. Um, and I think it's because Invader Zim 
is an entire like brand of humor based on saying inappropriate things in inappropriate situations. Right, right, right. So like, so just every like pimply like um like not quite goth tween ended up like taking Zim into their hearts, and so I feel like that's where a lot of the negative attention from the fandom comes from. Sure. Uh, that same fandom went on to again, like we talked about, fucking monkey bacon pirate ninja, right? Uh, low so random, random, yeah, uh, humor. Which again, they're just trying to, they're doing what all kids do. You, you know, I'm I, you do backyard wrestling, drawing like cool ninjas in your notebook, and trying to and yelling waffles in the middle of a fucking uh, church ceremony. Right. Uh, you know, you're just trying to emulate the thing you love so much. And I have to say, too, uh, in, in the defense of the show and that kind of humor. Ricky Simons talks about how a 14-year-old girl just, like, bit him in the hand and wouldn't let go during a signing. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, in defense of that, the, the humor in, in the show and that kind of humor, Joe, I was totally laughing at Gurr moments. Yeah. Like, last night when I was watching the show. I Like, I, I love Gurr. I, I think, think everyone's just, at this moment, like, old enough to be ashamed of their scene kid past. Uh-huh. Like just uh, you know, listening to Jimmy World all the time, posting and just, on Blunder Years on the on Reddit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, just a thousand MySpace profiles screaming in agony, and Zim represents that era to them, and so there's like a pushback, but it's not what like the core actual product is. is high fucking quality, great shit in my opinion. Uh, I honestly, God, I wish I tried. Uh, there's a few. Uh, at the Dorkley offices, there's a few people with, like, various flavors of fangirl past, but no one who was specifically in the Zim world. And honestly, if you're if you're listening to this, like, reach out to me on Twitter. I would love to pick your brain. Maybe we'll do a bonus episode about it. Sure. But the fangirl universe is something that, like, I have no experience with. Yeah. And I need to know about it. I tried asking Marie, but she, like, read actual books like a fucking nerd. <laughs> so, episodes we loved. We already talked about Dark Harvest, in which Zim replaces people's organs with random household items. <laughs> it's incredibly Cronenberg. Another great. <laughs> oh, my squealy spooch. My squealy spooch. Wait, did you hear that? His squiddly spoots. That's not. That's not human organs. You know. Was, that's. I dip. have a squiddly spoot. <laughs> more um, organs means more healthy. Dude, it is so great. That whole episode is so great. Another thing I love about the show, by the way, really quick, is that like most episodes end in like just like the the series would end there. Like <laughs> the whole town got destroyed, or Dib gets like arrested at the end of. Uh, uh, oh, are you talking Dark about how uh, he, like, Zim, and into a cowboy Zim and Dib were just turned into two balonies at the end of an episode? And now is going to be my other, uh, <laughs> another favorite episode, uh, Balonis Maximus, uh, Balonius Maximus, rather, in, uh, which is a total parody of The Fly by David Cronenberg, <laughs> in which Zim and Dib end up getting fused with baloney, and it ends with them turning into giant sausages. Again, this is a dead-end ending, and the show didn't care. Like, <laughs> it was just, it didn't matter. Like, this is a world in which the world could end at, at, at the end of every single episode. Or uh, Speaking of body horror, uh, I don't remember what the actual name of the episode is, but the whole deal with Pustulio, the pimple that Zim draws a face yes. on, is fucking gross. The way they animated yeah. the pus like moving within it is uh-huh. so fucking rad. Um, Mega Doomer is another good one for the humor of the show. Mega Doomer is Zim piloting a giant robot that has a cloaking device that's like destroying the neighborhood and he's just like laughing at his domination. But the whole time he doesn't realize that he also is not invisible. So you just see Zim like floating down the street thinking he's like secretly like getting pulling one over on everybody. And um, the, but all, and also the machine has to be plugged in at all times, which makes it good. <laughs> like very annoying um it's very funny and uh 
Uh, I already mentioned Bloody's Pizza Hog, but special shout-outs again to Bloody's Pizza Hog. Uh, what was the episode? Oh, shit, I got to remember the actual name because it was really good. It was a two-parter. Uh, it was like backseat drivers from another dimension or something. Mm. Shit, I'm doing it. And well, my tablet stopped working. Anyway, <laughs> it's a really good one. It's the one where uh, like uh, Zim and Dib both try and hijack the uh, the Massive, which is the capital ship of the Urkin Empire. A uh, lot of great lines from uh, Kevin McDonald from Kids in the Hall. Yeah, by the way, Kevin McDonald is like one of the head aliens that <laughs> sent Zim down to Earth to destroy it. Uh, uh, and he's hilarious. Uh, the episode where they introduce Tack is great. The, just the whole enormous weenie scene. I think it's called Planet Jackers. Um, but I have a good quote here um, about what makes the show so great and funny uh, from Joan and Vasquez that I think might be good to uh, to say as we round Backseat up. Backseat drivers from beyond the stars. Backseat drivers from beyond the stars. Awesome. All oh, right. and Zim eats waffles is amazing because it's uh, it was originally supposed to be just an unbroken. 10-minute sequence of just Zim in a single shot eating waffles while Dib tried to find, quote-unquote, dirt on him. <laughs> uh, so this, this is the quote here. I thought the fun thing about doing a kid's show like that is you've got all these people rooting for someone who is trying to destroy the audience. The only person who's trying to save the Earth, Zim's arch-rival Dib, has as much contempt for his fellow human beings as the person he's trying to stop. Because of his intelligence, he's kind of looked down on by most of the other kids. He's a freak. It's fun that the alien is on both sides. Dib is as much of an alien on, to his own people as Zim is. I've always loved the idea of ambiguity between good and evil. What's great is, uh, even though I'm thinking of that stuff on my own and no one else, no one's going to pick up on it, they're going to enjoy the show. But I've actually gotten kids who have been talking about that. Who's the bad guy here, they say. I don't care. They're both funny, and that's really cool. <laughs> oh, every scene with uh, the teacher Ms. Bitters. Yeah, who is just I love constantly talking about like the heat death of the universe yes. and entropy, and just how we're all gonna die, and it's just so doomed and great. I just love. I can't believe it exists. Like uh, the voice actress for her is one Lucille Bliss, oh, who was uh, the voice of Smurfette. <laughs> Completely different performance. That is so funny. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel, as I said earlier in the episode. Zim is not gone for good. On April fourth, twenty seventeen, Nickelodeon announced that they had greenlit a ninety-minute TV movie based on the series. And at San Diego Comic Con in twenty eighteen, so this is like super recent. Jonah Vasquez spoke about how they finally came to an agreement after years. Originally. It was supposed to be a six-episode miniseries, but they ended up on a movie because, as he put it, it would be infinitely less stressful. This movie is, is slated to be released in the spring of 2019. So oh, there so you go. Like, like right around the corner. I, I'm so excited. I'm, I'm totally going to watch it. On uh, Jonin's social media and uh, Ricky's social media, uh, they already had like the cast screening. Like It's, um, it's pretty much in the can. Yeah, that's amazing. Was it called Rise of the Florpus? I believe Return of the Florpus. Return of the Florpus. So, anyways, I think that's our episode on Invader Zim. And by I think, I know it is. uh, Because we just did it. Because we just did it. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for listening. Enter the Florpus. Awesome. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, If you'd like to uh, support us further, go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Um, we do extra bonus content uh, for just five bucks a month. Uh, we do pump out extra bonus episodes every single week and on various different topics, general discussions, monthly roundups of all the stuff we've been playing and watching and, and seeing, all that kind of stuff. Also, you'll be safe in the knowledge that you'll be securing uh, the vital monies that Holden and I need to live in the world. I literally can't live without <laughs> the Patreon money that we receive every month. So uh, thank you to I everybody who already does it. 
but it would be like a walking death. <laughs> um, okay, what else was I going to say? I was going to say if you'd like to follow me further, you can check out twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Hope. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young. And, uh, you know, if you if you enjoy the sound of my voice, maybe check out dropout.tv where my show Cartoon Hell airs a new episode every Tuesday. All right. Take care, everybody. And remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.